In James chapter 3, verse 13, we see, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we have no need of lofty wisdom from the world. We have no need of great wondrous works, Lord, by the hands of mankind. All pales in comparison to the wisdom of God, the Scripture revealed, and the will of our Father that is so clearly defined before us. Lord, true meekness, Lord, is not... Lord, berating ourselves, it is not groveling on the ground. True meekness is knowing that God has the answers. Lord, not I, not others. My Father, who created me and loves me and has a place for me in His kingdom, knows the right answer. Lord, why would I go anywhere else? Why would I let the pride puff itself up in my heart? Lord, when the answers to righteousness are so readily accessible in His Word. Lord, let us today explore meekness, Lord, in the contrast of the world's wisdom. Let us fully understand now that to be meek, Lord, is my strength. To be humble is a power given to me by the Holy Spirit. And to be right before God is to humble myself and worship His greatness. We thank you. And in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. He begins by asking, Who is wise and understanding among you? A common tactic of the Jewish teachers would be to have them sit around them and ask them questions and have them respond to gauge the level of learning that had been effective. So James asked this in the letter, Who is wise? Think to yourself right now, Who is a wise person that you would go to about a spiritual question? For me, there's, there's no question about it, and I'm not saying this to puff him up, but I would go to Dennis Bastow right now. Right? Just yesterday, watching him drag limbs as he's expounding the heartbeat that God causes, right? Wisdom just pouring out of him. Who is wise? The word wise is defined by biblical scholars as one with moral insight and skill in practical issues. So the moral insight to what is good and the skill to apply it to the life. Understanding, they refer to as an intellectual perception and the ability to accumulate more. This is my definition. Wisdom is knowing and applying the will of God as seen in Scripture to one's life and heart. And this is the dividing line amongst Christians and everyone else. The Word of God is my standard. It is the perfected role of God's will in my life. If I have a question, the answers are found within. And I do not simply speak of devotionals or Bible studies. I mean when I am suffering, when God has placed a thorn in me that is giving me great grief and great pain, I do not go to my mind, I do not go to worldly counselors, as accurate or as good as they might be, I go to the Word of God, for there is my comfort. There is my hope. There is the will of God, even to say to me, as God said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. You hurt, but my grace is better. You grieve, 
but my joy will overcome that grief. You have pain, but life in me, pain will not last. Joy will last for eternity. And the answers to our lives are found within. We have a lot of cliches about the Bible, the good book. I happen to know the author, most people will say. And I do not speak of going to seminary and getting a hermeneutical degree and the ability to understand it. I don't speak of that. The Bible was not a puzzle book that God was trying to cause smoke and mirrors and for you to have to figure out what it means. The real struggle with understanding the Bible is our English language. It's not the Bible's fault. It's our culture and our ability. God is speaking clearly. Clearly. And when he clearly says, who is wise among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works. How do I know what good conduct is? It's found in here. This guides the conduct. This guides goodness. This guides the wise man to know that he is truly wise. Do you know, when I'm at my wisest, it's when I am reading this, and it is my soul, unfallible, without error, guide. That's when I'm at my wisest. Do you know what I get to be at my, well, let's, do, let's use a southern quackism, my most dumb? It's when I put this down and I go, well, I think. That's the worst form of biblical study and interpretation. I think. Instead, we should say, God says. God wills. God has given me clearly the blueprint and the plan for my life. And all I have yet to do is but follow him, truly trusting him for his will. But instead, I go off. Like Samson, I seek a different way than what God has ordained for me. Like David, I look across the rooftops at temptations instead of go where God would have me to go. Like Peter, I shy away from the truth in favor of comfort and the normal. I should be like Jesus when Satan tempts him and he responds with God's word. Turn to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs containing much great wisdom. Chapter 2 will be in verse 6. Wisdom is knowing and applying the will of God. Wisdom is understanding that God's way is right even when it hurts or contradicts my feelings. And that's great maturity to know that my feelings are no bearing on righteousness. They will guide me into sin. They will take me off the path of righteousness and into the weeds and into the muck of the world. Feelings deceive and lie. Feelings are no good gauge of my walk with Jesus Christ. That is not to say feelings are useless. They are gifts of God, joy, happiness, love. These are good emotional feelings. But when your feelings outweigh the wisdom of God, you truly are in a dangerous place. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. The Lord gives wisdom. You don't go earn it somewhere. No matter how much you study, how many degrees you get, how, much, how many books you read, God is the one who gives wisdom and He gives as He sees fit. That's why we can look at people and say things like, wow, you're wise beyond your years. Because who has given them that wisdom? God has, if it's true. God's the one who gives wisdom. You don't get it from men. You don't go to peers to find out if you're wise with God. God will show you. The Holy Spirit is the guide, not just the comforter, but the guide into the righteousness of God. It's the Lord giving you wisdom. Think about Solomon. 
Scripture says there was none wiser, nor would there ever be. And yet Solomon even fell into grievous sin by marrying so many wives and allowing these pagan gods and idols to be brought into his kingdom. And he worshipped them instead of the one true God. He was the wisest, and yet he fell. Why? Because he looked away from the will of God. He looked away from the words of God. He looked away from the highway of holiness and instead to false idols. And it's so easy to condemn the one who has a physical false idol in their house that they bow to and worship, right? That's an easy thing to judge and correct. But how many of us have that idol in some other form? And we bow to it when it's not so easy to see that we're doing it. The drive to produce at work could even be an idol that's so easy to fall into. Wanting our children to be right so much that we move them away from the principles of Scripture into our desires for their lives could be an idol. The Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. And He learned it from no one. He gained it nowhere. It comes from within His very nature as divine that He has the knowledge and the understanding that we need. Think about the phrase, be right. We all want to be right. We want to know that we're right. We want to tell others that we are right. But what's the standard for me being right? There's a great little cartoon that floats around social media, but it has a good application. It's the number six, and both men are looking at it from different directions. And from the one man's point of view, it looks like a nine. And the whole point of the meme is, if you come look at it from the other's perspective, you'll change yours. But which is it? Is it a six or a nine? God, in His divine wisdom and power and nature as God, will determine whether it is a six or a nine and say so clearly. Like when He labeled 666. That is not 999. God decides. Verse 7, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright, those who have rejected the pride of the world, who have rejected the wisdom of the world, who are walking upright for him, toward him. He has given sound wisdom. He's storing it up for them. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity because the world hates integrity. The world hates accountability. The world wants destruction of godly leaders and godly people more than anything else. And God will be a shield for you in that moment. His shield is His Word. The flaming darts of the wicked one cannot penetrate this Word. But when we put it down and we come up with our argument and we say, Hey, I can take the devil on because i got a pretty good thought about this. You'll fall. You will fall. But when God is your shield, Jesus, when he responded to Satan, used God as his shield when he quoted the scripture and said, not so, Satan. The Lord has said, and so should we. We walk in integrity, verse 8, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of his saints. Guarding the paths of justice. How unjust does our world feel today? How much sin and grievous error seems to go on, seems to be celebrated, seems to be loved by the world. How often does it go on within God's church? Far too many puffing up with pride and claiming works of righteousness of their own doing instead of rightly giving the credit and the glory to God the Father. How many 
have said, I got so-and-so saved. This is a wrong phrase. Instead, we should say, God used me as the vessel of the gospel to witness to them, and Jesus Christ did the saving. Jesus Christ does the saving. What did Paul say he was? A clay pot. And a cracked one at that. I can't imagine how cracked I am. (laughs) But God holds me together for his glory. He guards the paths of justice. And how much injustice is God going to correct in eternity? All of it. On that final judgment day, when he separates the sheep from the goats, and he says to those who rejected his gospel, who hated his works of righteousness, who loved evil, depart from me, I never knew you. Think about Matthew 7. The ones who stand before God and say, Lord, we casted out demons in your name. We did many wonderful works in your name. And God says to them, depart. Because you casted out demons, but you never once repented. You puffed yourself up in your ability of demon exorcism. But you never once humbled yourself in repentance. You never once believed in the Son. And that's why he'll say to you, depart from me. Depart from me. Charles Spurgeon said this about wisdom. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Why, uh, many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. It's a dangerous thing, a man with knowledge but without wisdom. There is no fool so great as a fool and a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. God guards the paths of justice and he watches over the way of his saints. God is watching over you. The same way you would watch over your little child or grandchild with their hand in yours. Walking along the path and suddenly the edge of the path becomes steep and rocks jagged below. You would not let that little child stray very far. Nor would you ever let them fall down the ravine. God is walking with you. And you walk a very narrow road through this world. And there are jagged rocks of destruction on either side. God holds your hand. He will not let go. John chapter 10. If you're in the hand of God, who can take you out? No one. No one. Wisdom is knowing the will of God. But wisdom is applying the will of God. How can I apply verse 8 here of Proverbs 2? See, knowledge is paths of justice, and justice has to be done. But wisdom is knowing that God is the one who completes that justice. I am not the judge. The Lord is. I don't want to be a knowing fool. I'm too much of a fool already in the flesh. Instead, I desire to be wise in the Spirit. James goes on. When he asks this question, who is wise and understanding, he gives a qualifier. By his good conduct. By his good conduct. If you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Good conduct is the mark of a true believer. And God's wisdom is worked out in the life of the true Christian in their attempts to do good conduct. Now, good conduct is not going to lead 
to salvation, it leads out of salvation. You do not behave well and enter the kingdom of heaven. You behave well because you are entering the kingdom of heaven. J. Ronald Blue said in his commentary, Here is an original show and tell. Wisdom is not measured by degrees, but by deeds. It is not a matter of acquiring truth in lectures, but applying truth to life. Class and lab, we do not graduate by learning in the classroom alone. We must go out and apply the knowledge and cause a change in our world. That's what Jesus did. Jesus did not come down and gather the disciples and give them the new revelation, the new covenant, the new testament, and then ascend on up into heaven and say, all right, fellas, have a good time. Get it figured out. I'll be back fairly soon. No, Jesus caused real effective change. How? Because he bled on that tree. He died on that cross and said to the Father, it is finished. Application of real wisdom. First Peter chapter 1, look at verse 13. This is how Christians apply themselves in good conduct. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So let's pause there. What is the action that I'm about to do? Paul called it spiritual warfare. He said, we don't fight with earthly hands, but against spiritual powers of darkness. We are in spiritual warfare now against the wicked ones of darkness. They're coming against God's church. They're seeking to destroy her. And we who are wise and mature are warriors against this darkness. And what are our weapons? It's my knees in the prayer closet, my Bible open, my heart open to God. Prepare yourselves for action. War is coming. War is here. There is no greater struggle, no matter how bad the economy gets, no matter how bad the government gets, no matter how physically bad it gets for believers in this country, the war spiritually is already here, and it's the more important one. It's now that Satan is devouring. It's now that the demons are possessing. It's now that the hosts of hell are rising against God's church. And what are we to do? Cower? Say, it's not my ministry. Someone else should go. Each individual believer is called to stand against this. And so many of you do it now, and I want to encourage you. How is, what's the best way to stand against it, you might ask? Keep living the fruitful Christian witness you're doing right now. Keep teaching, keep discipling, keep showing the world what it means to follow Christ. See, the biggest thing the devil wants you to do is stop. Stop. But you must not, Christian. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. This is not about drunkenness here. This is not about cons consumption of alcohol here. Sober-minded is ready and alert and willing to get the job done. It's the same way when you're at work, you are on versus being at home. Well, we're always called to be sober-minded, ready to get the job done. We set our hope fully, fully is a tricky little word there. Because so often we hold it back. We hold the little things back that we're nervous about or we're scared or we don't want maybe God to take exactly yet because we don't feel like we're done with it. We don't do that. We set it fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Obedient children. 
the way that we want our children and grandchildren to act is the way that God wants us to act to Him. Not back-talking everything His Word says. Not, not running away at the first sign of, of, of work and discipline. As obedient children, do not be conformed. Don't change to the passions of your former ignorance. And what's the former ignorance? Before I was saved, I lived my life as an affront to God. I danced before Him in wickedness. I declared my greatness over His Lordship. And I'm so glad that I was ignorant of these things. So God came and corrected. God came and learned me. He gave me wisdom. He showed me what was right. And I should not fall back into this. We should not be conformed to passions of ourselves. Simply put, we don't end up looking more like the world after you follow Christ. You end up looking more like Jesus. Ready to love, ready to forgive, ready to flip a table or two if necessary to bring people into the kingdom. Verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This is good conduct, is holiness. The word holy means set apart, sanctified, dignified, glorified, justified. It is the very thing God is and I am not. I'm not holy on my own. Apart from Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit and God's will, I have no holiness. I can gain none. I can create none. I can buy none. In fact, I will only continue to produce the evil of my former ignorance. Who is holy? God is magnified, glorified, justified faithful and set apart from us, rightfully so. But he's given me now a command. He who called you is holy. He is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Notice there that he didn't say, try really hard. Do it most of the time. Just do it half and you'll, that'll be good enough. No, be holy, be sanctified, be set apart in all of your conduct. We shouldn't have to declare to the world all the time our Christianity. Our conduct should be so holy and different that they should know just by interacting with us. My grandfather, the, the chaplain to motorcycle gangs, says this. He said, if you spend three days with somebody and they don't know that you're a Christian, you're probably not. And he's being generous. Three days. Because that's enough time where some prayer was supposed to happen. Some worship of God was supposed to happen. Within three days, some trouble has arisen, and trusting in God's will is going on. And if they don't know you're a Christian in three days, you're probably not. Now, that's not an end-all, be-all. Just my grandfather. <laughs> you, you know, you might get sick for three days and be in bed, you know. <laughs> but it is true. It is true. If they don't know you're a believer, why? Because the command here is to be holy and set apart. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, why is this? Why am I changed and becoming more holy because he is holy? Because he's changing me to be like him. Peter warns against being conformed to the former passions, the former sins. And it's easy to be conformed to that because that's what I am. I'm prideful and selfish and evil. 
And I can fall right back into that with no time and no preparation and no work. I can do it immediately. <laughs> but he who is holy, who's making me like him, has called me to be like him in this holiness. Simply put, the closer I get to Jesus, the more I should resemble Jesus. The closer I get to God, the more I should look like God. The closer I draw to the Spirit, the more I should act like the Spirit. And what does God do? He is righteous. He is holy. He is perfect. And He never, ever sins. One day I'm going to be like that. You know what's so great about heaven to me? Even while I was worshiping down here, trying to get my, my fleshly mind in a full state of thinking only about God, the sermon I'm preaching to you right now was floating into my thoughts, remember, reminding me about point number three, quote number two. And that's not going to happen in heaven. Tomorrow's work that's in your minds right now, that will not happen in heaven. That situation you have physically, that diagnosis that's going on, that will not happen in heaven. That loved one that you're hurting for, that will not happen in heaven. Nothing will distract from the worship and holiness of being with God. Christians, we prepare for action. We do not fall back into the same passions of sin. We instead live in the holiness of God. Holiness is the goal of wisdom and good conduct. I don't be good just because God tells me to. I desire good conduct because that's the holiness of God that I so desire. And that's real Christianity. A thirst for God's holiness. A thirst to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And a deep desire to be right before God. But in my flesh, I can't do that. I can't be right before God. So who is? Who is right in the presence of God? His son, Jesus. And who said he covers me with his sacrificial atoning blood? We stand before God, splattered in the crucified blood of our Lord. Covered in his sacrifice. Covered in his atonement on the cross. And that's why God can say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Singular, not plural. Because who's the good servant? Jesus. See how the entire Bible circles back to Jesus in every way? God in every way wrote his book to glorify the Son. And in every way, our lives should be the same way. Everything about me should circle back to Christ. Well, let's move on. James, in verse 13, says that we should show good conduct in the meekness of wisdom. And that's actually what the sermon is about today. Is meekness. I have one point here that I want to elaborate, uh, elaborate on. Meekness is not a weakness. Meekness is not weakness. I'm afraid sometimes that we have a culture, not necessarily bad or sinful, but a culture in America of the rugged individual. The cowboy, you might say. In fact, I'm thinking of John Wayne. 
And John Wayne said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. John Wayne said, I'm not going to hit your son. Ah, I might as well, and punches that guy. John Wayne rides off alone in the sunset after the girl has been rescued. But unfortunately, John Wayne's not in the Bible. And this kind of American macho stuff is not a biblical teaching. In fact, I've heard a lot of Christians actually, with that intertwined, say things like that. Like, you've got to stand up for Jesus or you'll fall for anything. It's like, that's not Scripture. That's John Wayne. <laughs> in fact, meekness is in, not a weakness. The world would tell us that we are weak, that we Christians who don't so readily fight and scrap and curse and yell, right, that we're weak and feeble and don't stand up for ourselves. But God said to be meek and humble is to have true wisdom that comes from his, his throne and not the world. The world's wisdom says to be loud and arrogant and push others around. That's how you get ahead in life, right? Nice guys finish last. J. Ronald Blue said, The good life and deeds are best betrayed in the humility of wisdom or wise meekness. The truly wise man is a humble man. Go to Psalm 149. There's a really simple point here, but I have been enraptured by this point all week. This verse caused me to leap around my office in literal joy. I'm not kidding. I literally got up and walked around my office going, yes, yes. Psalm 149, verse 4. One forty nine four. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Now what a joy that is right there, that God the Father is up in heaven glancing down at you and is taking pleasure in you. Your glorifying, your glorification of him, your love for your neighbor, your attempt to be conformed to the image of Christ, your following of the Spirit's lead. God is taking pleasure in these things. Think back to when you were a little child. Wasn't it great when those above you were happy with you? How much sweeter is it to know that God is happy with you? He takes pleasure. But look what he does. He adorns the humble, the meek, not with weakness, but with salvation. And this is the point that got me so excited. The world is telling me that I need to stand up for myself and be strong and put away that humble stuff. Quit being so meek and weak. But God says the opposite. Not only does he adorn those he pleasures in, he adorns the humble and the meek with salvation. The very thing that's lifted me out of the judgment fire of hell. The very thing that is saving my soul. The very thing that is lifting me to heaven. And seeing Jesus the same way Stephen saw Jesus. That Paul saw Jesus. That all the martyrs see him. My meekness was not a weakness. It was salvation given to me by Jesus. And that's what I am now. Saved by Christ. And when I stand before him, I'll still stand in humbleness. And meekness. And not only is it not a weakness, it was never a weakness. I was more strong when I was being meek than ever before because my strength was found in the power of God and not my own. God takes pleasure in his children's meekness and respect for him. He blesses the humble. 
Read Proverbs. He rejects all the prideful ones and casts them away from him, but to the humble he brings close and shelters. He blesses the meek one with salvation. Spiritual victory is the end game here of the humble, of the meek one. Church, meekness is not a weakness. And don't listen to the lies of the world who would tell you so. Meekness is salvific strength and power given by the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's enough. Dear Lord Jesus, I humbly thank you that my meekness is not a weakness today. The world would look at me and call me weak and feeble and afraid. But instead, Lord, I stand in the very opposite of fear. I stand in faith. I stand in the very opposite, Lord, of weakness. But the strength of salvation given to me by my humble repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, Lord, He is the Holy One. And to humble myself before Him now, to prostrate myself before Him, Lord, is my good and desirable service. This Word guides me so and leads me to understand fully that it is not I who have the right answers. It is not I who is wise. It is not I who is strong. But it is my God, my Creator, the one who wrote the book. Lord, and He's not some far distant Creator of old. Lord, He is close to me. He is personally invested in me. He gave His Spirit within my heart to comfort me, His Son to die for my sins. And He gave His own presence. One day He'll complete by bringing that church home. And all of God's people will stand around the throne singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. And they'll sing for all eternity. And never once again will sin enter our minds. Never once again will we face an earthly struggle. Never once again will pain rob us of the joy of being with God our Father. But Lord, I pray a challenge now to us. Let us not walk out of here today, Lord, continuing to agree with the world's definition of strong. Let me instead remember the word, Lord, that the meek one, the humble one, the one who bows in honor and awe before you. Lord, this is the one whom salvation has given. Meekness is not a weakness. Lord, meekness is my strength. For in my meekness I glorify you. And all God's people who do as well say, Amen. Amen.